Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is June 1st. I'm Andrea Linares. Here are today's headlines. Outrage across the United States over the murder of George Floyd, peaceful protests turning violent, authorities enacting curfews in more than two dozen cities, President Trump holding a call with the nation's governors, deriding them as weak and demanding tougher crackdowns on protesters. And police aggression escalating in some cities, law enforcement officials targeting nonviolent protesters, bystanders, and even the press. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin today with the growing protests in Minnesota for a third day in a row. Violence erupted in Minneapolis following the death of George Floyd while in police custody. Angry protesters breached a police precinct, setting buildings and cars on fire, and that anger has spread across the country. Minnesota's governor speaking out about the violence in emotional words at a news conference earlier today. It's hurting beyond words. Minneapolis and St. Paul are on fire. The fire still smolder in our streets. The ashes are symbolic of uh, decades and generations of, of pain, of anguish, unheard, and now generations of pain is manifesting itself in front of the world. And the world is watching. We have coverage of the investigation and the reaction from the White House, but first, Here's a recap of what happened last night. Tensions are running high. Protesters setting a police precinct on fire while demanding justice for George Floyd, who died at the hands of police. Minneapolis police say all staff had evacuated the precinct in the interest of safety. Crowds cheered and set off firecrackers. And take a look at these dramatic scenes in St. Paul. Chaos in the streets and stores being looted. The city's mayor declaring a state of emergency. The Minnesota National Guard has now activated more than 500 soldiers to St. Paul, Minneapolis and surrounding communities. And today, this. Why, why am I under arrest? A CNN crew was released from custody after being arrested while reporting. Despite having press credentials, Omar Jimenez, his producer and photographer, were all detained. CNN had a white correspondent, Josh Campbell, reporting live from a block away. He was not arrested. Minnesota's governor says he deeply apologizes for what happened. Angry demonstrations spread to other cities. In Denver, one car drove into a crowd of protesters, knocking one person to the ground before the crowd chased after it. In downtown Manhattan, police say dozens were arrested. One officer punched in the face and another hit with the trash can. One person allegedly attempted to take an officer's gun from their holster. In L.A., protesters rallied outside a police station. In Phoenix, clashes also erupted between police and demonstrators. And in Columbus, Ohio, people stormed the state house, smashing windows. Meanwhile, we are learning more about Floyd. He grew up in Houston, Texas, where he still has family. He loved his kids, his family. I mean, he was a real great man. Those who knew him describe him as a gentle giant who left Houston and moved to Minneapolis for a fresh start. Courtney Ross was Floyd's fiance. You know, if he was here, 
he would say that he's a man of God. He would stand on that firmly. And so far, a cause of death has not been announced. The medical examiner's office issued a statement saying it cannot rush the autopsy process. Now to the urgent investigation into Floyd's death, the FBI launching a probe, the DOJ calling it a top priority while the Hennepin County prosecutor asked for more time to put together all the facts. Rafael Rodriguez has all the details. With anger spiking in Minneapolis, the FBI and Justice Department are beginning a full-scale investigation into the death of George Floyd. Federal authorities making it clear they plan on interviewing scores of witnesses and looking for any additional video that may be helpful. Each little piece of the puzzle helps us complete the big picture. At a press conference Thursday, authorities vowing they would pursue an aggressive probe into the death that shocked the nation and reignited questions about race and policing. Give me and give the United States Attorney the time to do this right and we will bring you justice, I promise. I will say this, that that video is graphic and horrific and terrible and no person should do that. But my job in the end is to prove that he violated a criminal statute. And now police records showing that Derek Chauvin, the officer who had his knee on Floyd's neck for several minutes, has faced more than a dozen complaints over the course of his 19-year career with the Minneapolis police. Disciplined for two of them, but it's uncertain what the remaining complaints were for. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. The Minneapolis Star Tribune reports former Democratic presidential candidate and potential vice presidential pick Amy Klobuchar in her time as the Hennepin County prosecutor did not prosecute Derek Chauvin after he, along with five other police officers, shot a 42-year-old man named Wayne Reyes back in 2006. That man had pulled a shotgun on police who then opened fire on him. The case did eventually go to a grand jury after Klobuchar was elected as one of Minnesota's two senators. Meanwhile, at the White House, President Trump firing off a series of tweets about this situation, causing Twitter to warn users about the glorification of violence. Janet Rodriguez is in Washington, D.C. Janet, what's all this about? Well, the president, Andrea, has been very vocal on this case, tweeting not too long ago that the National Guard was there and they were ready to take action. But it was a tweet from overnight that has everyone talking and it was very much incendiary. And I quote what the president said, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd and I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Walz and told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty and we will assume control when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Of course, that raised the alarm burst over at Twitter. They basically said that they were not going to take it down, but they were going to label it because it violated the rules about glorifying violence. Now, the governor of Minnesota was just asked in a press conference about this tweet a few minutes ago. He said that he did not know that the president will be tweeting this way, that he did speak to the president and they were ready for the federal government to take control. But this tweet was unnecessary and clearly did not help. Now, the mayor of Minneapolis also responded. Weakness is refusing to take responsibility for your own actions. Weakness is pointing your finger at somebody else during a time of crisis. Donald Trump knows nothing about the strength of Minneapolis. We are strong as hell. Is this a difficult time period? Yes, but you better be damn sure that we're going to get through this.
And now this tweet also intensifies the fight between Twitter and the president. Yesterday, the president signed an executive order basically asking the FCC to look into a section, a rule that currently protects the free speech of these companies on the uh, Silicon Valley giants that are basically untouchable because of federal law. The president saying that that shield needs to be taken away and there should be an easier way to regulate them and be able to sue them for silencing conservative voices. Uh, he said that they are basically uh, political demonstrators. And now the president coming back to the George Floyd uh, controversy, he said that he hasn't spoken to the family. He was asked yesterday at a press conference whether he had done so, and this is what he had to say. Have you spoken to the family of George Floyd yet? No, I haven't, but I feel very, very badly. It's a very shocking sight. Well, Bill and I were talking about it before. It's one of the reasons Bill's here right now, uh, because, as you know, we're very much involved. And I've asked the Attorney General, FBI, and the Attorney General to take a very strong look and to see what went on, because that was a very, very bad thing that I saw. I saw it last night, and I didn't like it. Now, the president has said, and the White House continues to repeat that they will see this case through until justice is served. The president will be holding a press conference here at the next hour, and I'm sure questions on this case will be asked. Back to you, Andre. Thank you, Janet Rodriguez in Washington, D.C., a very heated situation. And joining me now by phone is John Shane, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and also a retired Newark, New Jersey police captain. John, thanks so much for joining us. Even though it's by phone, we've all seen the painful images of George Floyd's arrest. What was your first reaction when you saw this video? Yes, thank you for having me this afternoon. Yeah, a very, very, very difficult video to watch. Uh, and the moment that I did see it, I said to myself, I don't see anything on the video that suggests the need for deadly force in the way that it was captured um, by these police officers. I, there's just nothing there that indicates that level of force was necessary, uh, uh, that it was proportional to any resistance that Mr. Floyd offered. And as they continued to apply force, I thought to myself, this is only growing worse because you only need to apply force to bring somebody under control and stop whatever threat. And it appeared at that moment that there was no threat. There was certainly no threat to the officer's lives, and it didn't warrant leaving him on the ground in a continued manner that way. So what would you say is it appropriate for police officers to put their knee on someone's neck? As you just indicated, we did not see any sort of resistance in that specific video. I don't know if you have seen perhaps surveillance footage from a nearby restaurant, which was also released. Yeah, I did see a couple different um, angles from the footage. There was one from the restaurant where he was first uh, encountered by the police, and I think they, they brought him into handcuffs at that point. Then there was another uh, video piece that I saw where he was on the ground and he was surrounded by a couple of officers that, were, that had him down on the ground and it looked like they were controlling him at that point. But to your original question about when to use uh, force across someone's neck, it's, it's almost never appropriate. The only time that a police officer is going to strike at someone's neck or some of that soft cartilage, such as the groin or the spinal area, things like that that are very sensitive, has to be a deadly force situation. Um, and this is why so many police departments across the country have banned 
chokeholds and lateral vascular neck restraints and striking to the neck um, as a matter of routine because if they're extremely risky procedures and the outcome is almost never good. Even if someone didn't die, the risk of permanent injury or disability is, is certainly a very likely. And in this situation, there's, I, there's nothing on that video that I've seen, and I, I, unless the um, police and prosecutors have something more than they're releasing to the public, I don't see how um, that is justified. Now, also in terms of rioting and looting, we have seen this situation continue to escalate. It's basically been spiraling out of control in the past couple of days, in the past couple of nights. What is the decision-making process there? Do you think officers let the situation get out of hand? We saw one of the police precincts basically on fire. Yeah, that, that is a collateral problem, no question about it. And I think what it really shows is how underprepared police departments are and cities in general across the country are for rioting situations. The police receive some rudimentary training in crowd control. Um, some police departments are better at it than others. For example, New York City uh, is very good at it. Los Angeles is very good at it. New York in particular because they have so many large crowd situations that they're constantly responding to. They have the proper tactics. They have the proper equipment. They train for it all the time. They have police officers that are deployed um, exclusively for disorder control. But when you get into uh, mid-sized cities, when you're talking about Minneapolis, St. Paul, or, or places around uh, other places around the country of similar size, they don't experience crowds to that degree. Uh, and I think I had, uh, the governor had, had said it best where uh, they, they prepared for a, a sporting event and they had 18 months, of, about 18 months of planning to do, to do that. Well, well what would they have been planning for all along during a riot? Had, had there been ongoing training? Had there been equipment acquisition? The answer is probably no. And so when they got confronted with this situation, they were, they were completely overwhelmed. And by the time they were able to muster the state police or the state patrol, I think it was, uh, along with the National Guard, the, the rioters had the upper hand by that point. And so now that they're getting these measures into place, they'll probably be able to restore order rather quickly. But that doesn't mean there hasn't been a significant amount of damage. Well, we will continue to monitor this situation. It's ongoing. It's a developing story. So thank you so much for your time. John Shane, professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Please take care. You're, you're quite welcome. Thank you. And As the country moves forward with reopening, the CDC making a dramatic prediction. At least 20,000 more coronavirus deaths in the coming weeks. This as outbreaks grow across southern states and New York City inches closer to phase one of reopening. Lorraine Caceres reports. He moves on with reopening, wearing masks is an ongoing debate. The president's weighing in, tweeting on Thursday so many different viewpoints while retweeting an article on a conservative website suggesting that wearing masks or rules on wearing masks puts us on a path to the government controlling more of our lives. Experts boiling it down. 
There's only really one scientific viewpoint here, which is masks work. They work to protect me. They work to protect you. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signing an executive order on Thursday authorizing private businesses to deny entry to people without face coverings. Has a right to protect themselves. That store owner has a right to protect the other patrons in that store. This as New York City moves closer to phase one of reopening within the next two weeks, with 200 to 400,000 New Yorkers returning to work. Meanwhile, across the country, clusters of outbreak continue to grow. In every southern state except Florida and Texas, new case counts are climbing. In Montgomery, Alabama, COVID-19 cases have more than quadrupled since reopening began across the state. We can't fast forward to the end of this movie. And we're trying to do that right now in the way we're approaching this process. And I think that's why we're seeing the spikes, not only in Montgomery, but also throughout Alabama. Outbreaks also being reported at food processing plant. A fruit packing plant in Washington state announcing 70 employees recently tested positive for COVID-19. 61 of the cases were asymptomatic. The company's CEO pointing to a breakdown of wearing masks and social distancing when employees were on their breaks. We could have done better. I think that through this process, we learned that we didn't do enough. And I sure hope that through our experience, which obviously has been very painful for many, that others will learn from it. At the Tyson Food Plan in Sherman, Texas, more than 300 employees tested positive for the virus. More than 20% of the plant's workers, 49, have already been cleared to return to work. The FDA has issued an emergency use authorization for a new coronavirus test from Quest Diagnostics that allows people to collect their sample at home. The company says more than 500,000 kits will be available by the end of next month. Back to you, Andrea. Thanks so much for all that reporting, Lorraine Gassidis. The economic impact of the coronavirus outbreak hitting hard in one of America's largest cities. Jaime Garcia has more on how renters in Los Angeles are struggling to meet their needs in the face of this pandemic. Just a few days before her rent is due, Blanca Martinez said that the current crisis is making it difficult for her to meet this monthly expense. We need this help because we can't work. This has never happened. This study from the University of California, Berkeley, found that among the main metropolitan cities in the state, Los Angeles is where the most tenants have been directly affected by the coronavirus pandemic. Almost a million people have lost their jobs or some of their income putting them in danger of not being able to pay their rent. The problem is that in Los Angeles we have 4 million people, half of which are tenants. And six of every 10 tenants in Los Angeles are Latino. This pandemic has resulted in the highest unemployment rate in Los Angeles in our history, higher than in the Great Depression. With the support of the Los Angeles mayor, $100 million of the $700 million coming from federal funding for the pandemic, have been proposed to be used to pay for the rent of up to 150,000 Angelinos. To be able to give relief of, and peace of mind to Angelinos and to reassure nervous landlords who don't know how they are going to hang onto their properties that they both have help on the way. The funds will prevent 150,000 tenants from losing their apartments, but more money is needed. According to the author of the proposal, the rent payments could begin as soon as July the 1st. It is the largest renter's relief program of any city in our nation, but it will still 
we were still going to need more help. Two qualified tenants must prove that they were directly affected, either by the contagious or for economic effects of the pandemic. In Los Angeles, Jaime Garcia, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. U News, your world, U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Japan reported 63 new coronavirus cases on Thursday, its highest number of daily infections in more than two weeks. The new cases bring its total number of known infections to more than 17,000, including 887 deaths. Tokyo reported 15 of those 63 new cases. It comes as the city announces phase two of its reopening. On Monday, schools, gyms, theaters and shops can reopen. Brazil's coronavirus emergency is getting worse by the day. A record high of new confirmed cases within a 24-hour period was reported with more than 26,400 new cases. The nationwide total is now close to 500,000. Thursday was the third day in a row that Brazil has recorded more than 1,000 daily deaths. Peruvian police are cracking down on delivery drivers in a bid to stem the spread of coronavirus in the country. The municipal police force of Lima arrived at an auto body shop to find a large group of delivery drivers waiting in lines and not respecting social distancing. Police said many of the drivers were not carrying the required screening certificates, showing them to be free of COVID-19. Peru has the second highest number of cases in Latin America with over 136,000. And now to Mexico, where the coronavirus is presenting a danger not just to the country's human residents, but increasingly many of their animal companions. Ana Portela has more on the rise of Mexico's abandoned pets as the pandemic wears on. This is Caramelo. His family abandoned him in April in the middle of the lockdown in Mexico City. He's the only pedigree dog in this adoption center. Quite exceptional, they say, because stray dogs are usually crossbreeds. Rescuers assume that he was abandoned due to the pandemic. Every day we receive phone calls or social media messages from people saying they want to give their dogs up for adoption. Obviously we ask why, and it's always, I can't afford my rent, so I'll have to move to my parents' home, or I have to go to another place, or I can't afford the food. Animal shelters are now struggling to keep up with the demand, such as this one in Colonia Roma, or this other one, a few yards down in the same neighborhood. Both used to rely on donors. Donations are down from 40 to 50 percent. People who usually fund the animal shelters now can't afford it. In case of restaurants that used to give them the leftovers, it's the same. They have no more food to give them or they can't give the same amounts because they have cut back resources. During these times, social media has become an ally for these shelters. Although some won't survive for more than a few months if things don't change. 
hacemos en vivos en los cuales We did live videos calling for help. We also asked people not to abandon their pets and many responded so far. We started to receive food, cleaning supplies that we use, collars, leashes, sweaters. Big brands have donated tons of animal food so that people can feed their pets while in confinement. But this is not enough. Before the coronavirus, Mexico had around 19.5 million dogs, but only one in three had a home. The government has helped some shelters, although none of the ones we visited has received any funding from the government. They helped us with volunteers or promoting campaigns to raise funds, or they themselves contacted companies to ask for donations. Mexico City is the epicenter of infections in the country. The transition to a new normal will start here in June 15 at the earliest. What comes next is still a big question mark, but this adoption center has no hopes. The situation for them will get better anytime soon. La cuestión aquí es querer The question here is, are the owners willing to keep their animals and not to see your pet as a thing or give them away or feeling they can't live with them or abandoning them on the street? In Mexico City, Ana Portella, EU News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.